become friends and unfriends and acquaintances of the like to a very special episode of the Hex and Cube podcast, a podcast where we talk about tabletop games and the community that gathers around them. I am your host, Kyle Schubert, and tonight I am joined by the one and only Abominable Joe Mann. Hello, everyone. Joe Weber is joining us tonight. Uh, very pumped to, to have one of the guys back on the show. It's been it's been a quick minute since we we had someone other than just myself. So I'm sure the listeners are excited about that as well. I don't know. I don't know if anyone's ever been excited to just listen to me drone on, but here I am. <laughs> well, it's good to have you, Joe. Thanks. Yeah. So why, might you ask, is this episode special? And that is because it is our 10th full episode, a milestone in my mind. And to celebrate, we are going to be doing our very first giveaway, which will kick off the new segment of the show tonight. So I love giveaways. Uh, Giveaways help us to better engage with our current and potential audience, which is awesome, but I just like giving things away. I like receiving things as well. It's not... Free stuff is awesome. (laughs) I mean, you can't deny that. It is great. Um, But whenever we do giveaways, I want them to be personal and I want them to be meaningful. I don't want to just give away random games that uh, I don't care for or that I have never played. And so we are going to be giving away one of my all-time favorite games in the Year of the Dragon, uh, a Steffenfeld design. Uh, This is a wonderful, tight, brutal resource management game. Uh, Emphasis on brutal. Yeah, it it is very (laughs) brutal. It has uh, frustrated myself as well as many of my uh, friends and family who have played the game. Which is a selling point, actually. So if you're if you're new to the podcast, you might not realize that. Yes, yes. I very much appreciate the nature of the game. Uh, some people do not. So uh, if that is not your thing, you should join the contest anyways and give it to someone who is a masochist like myself. Kyle is like that guy that you know that brags that he eats ghost peppers for fun. <laughs> Because the spice just hurts so good as it goes down the esophagus. Metaphorically, with regards to board games, that is true. There you go. That is true. Uh, So we will be starting this giveaway at 8 p.m. CST on Monday, September 21st. And we will be closing it at 8 p.m. CST on Monday, September 28th. So we'll be open for... One week, and you will have two primary ways to enter the contest. Uh, And each will give you a separate entry. Uh, So then your your chances will be better to win. Uh, These two ways are to, one, and this is the the kind of the primary way to sign up, and really the the method that we would prefer, but uh, the first method is to join our mailing list. Uh, I will post a link to our landing page in the show notes, or you can just stop by the website at hexacube.com. There'll be a pop-up window that will allow you to 
to uh, get on that list. The second way that you can enter is to retweet the contest on Twitter. And so uh, the day of the beginning of the contest, I will post on my personal Twitter, uh, which doubly acts as the Twitter for Hex and Cube. Uh, I'll post the contest information and you can go on and retweet it and I will keep track of everybody that um, that retweets it and that will be an entry for you. I was going to run the contest through one of these fancy contest organization things, uh, but I don't know if any of y'all have ever looked into what uh, one of these costs. I decided to, to try to muscle through it myself. So we'll see how it goes. I'm going to try and keep everything organized and, and do it real proper. Uh, but, you know, maybe next time the show will be banging huge. We'll have sponsors just come out of everywhere and it'll be a lot uh, more feasible to do. But we'll see. I think you'll end up thanking Kyle for not spending the money on the contest software and instead running twice as many giveaways. Oh, there we go. Right? I yeah. mean. Yeah. So, uh, you know, tell your friends, tell your grandma. Tell whoever you want to tell. Uh, this is a great game. I think it should be in everybody's collection. It's a, a wonderful experience if you like getting your toes smashed by bricks. And who doesn't? Who doesn't, really? Uh, and being on our mailing list is great anyways. You get cool monthly updates from us with exclusive little tidbits. Usually I go over what we've been working on, uh, talk about some games that I'm pumped to play, and then dive into uh, one of my game designs a little bit. So it's good stuff. 21st, September 2020, the contest will begin 8 p.m. It's going to be great. There's a couple other news items that I wanted to bring to your, bring to your attention. Uh, first, I've added a partners page to the blog as we have added our first official partner, Metallic Dice Games, which basically means that we plug their stuff and we get a discount code that we pass on to you guys. And then if you buy anything from them, we get a small percentage of that. So it's, it's their affiliate program. Uh, Metallic Dice Games is the provider of premium dice and some other cool gaming accessories like dice trays and towers. If you watch the product spotlight video on the, the blog, you will get the rundown on our relationship and some of the products that they offer. So go check out the partners page at hexandcube.com. Additionally, I've also added a page called More Than Games. And it's basically uh, just a page that spotlights some of the causes that we personally support and give to. This is in no way a sensational push from us to make the gaming community feel, feel guilty uh, about anything so that they begrudgingly give or give out of some kind of self-righteous arrogance. Uh, I just simply wanted to use the, the platform that I have as an outlet um, for those that are interested in helping out some specific organization or some specific cause. Uh, so right now we are focusing on the International Justice Mission, 
which is an organization that works to free people and emphatically children from human trafficking. Our family has always been burdened to care for and protect children who intrinsically cannot protect themselves. And so this organization fit really well with uh, my family's passions. And it, it just made sense for uh, the, the Hex and Q brand to get behind it as well. Uh, they're doing some really great work. And so if you are interested in that, please go check out uh, International Justice Mission. You can you can just Google it or uh, you can go to hexandcube.com, find the uh, More Than Games page, and the link is there. I'll probably put the link in the show notes as well just to make sure that it's easy for you to get to. Other than that, uh, I don't have any more news. So we will move on to the Game Night segment. Uh, thankfully, we had a game night just this last weekend where we played the long-awaited Tekenu, designed by Tuskini and Turksy. A couple uh, heavy hitters for me personally. Uh, it came out this year in the infamous 2020. Uh, it is a dice-drafting resource management game, and it is on the heavier end of the spectrum. Um, there's definitely heavier games, but it is, uh, it's, it's up there. So Joe, do you want to kind of give us just a, a brief gameplay overview? Yeah, sure. Oh, Takano is a lot. There is a lot going on and in a good way, I think. Um, it, it's, uh, it's a lot to take in on the table. It's a giant game board. And I think it's one of those games that you have to play it at least one time to really let your mind wrap around it and 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 sort of uh, let it speak to you a little bit. Yeah. Um, but the the primary mechanism in the game is dice drafting, and that happens in a sort of a unique way, uh, as you have dice that are allocated to a number of different sections of a wheel, sort of like pie slices of a wheel. And thematically, those are falling in, in sunlight or shadow around a giant obelisk, that a three-dimensional obelisk that sits on the game board on, on the wheel. Um, and basically, as you play the game, uh, dice that are one of three or four different colors get rolled and have values that are, are available to draft from, from these different pie slices. And each slice is affiliated with a specific type of action that is on the game board. And so the die that you choose on your turn will dictate the action or actions that you are able to take based on the, the slice that you take it from. Uh, the, the pip value on the die will also influence the action that you take, either the specific action or the degree to which that action can be performed. Sometimes a higher value will benefit you more in one way and less in another, and then sometimes it's the inverse. Um, so each each action and each pie slice, um, you know, treats those pip values in a different way, which is which is unique as you start to learn the game. And then as you take the dice, there are, I mentioned each pie slice has three different sections in it that you can choose dice from. And so 
uh, depending on which section you're, you're um, spawning the dice in each turn, uh, the color of the die that goes into that space dictates which section of that pie slice it gets placed in. And so one section, those dice are basically locked and you need to take a special action or spend special tokens from your supply that you've gained through throughout the game and other turns in order to unlock those dice. And when you do that, you're able to basically take a, a mega action. You can do anything you want with any pip value uh, using that, that locked die. Otherwise, those are off limits and forbidden. And then in the other two sections, you have dice that are either in the light, uh, you know, they're kind of in a brighter colored section or they're in a little more shaded section. And and those dice, when you take them and you take the action, the only thing that's really different about choosing a die from one or the other uh, uh, section is that then when you put them on a player mat uh, in front of you and they either go on the left side of a little scale or the right side of a scale that's printed on your mat. And... At the end of four turns, you'll have chosen four dice and you will have placed them on the left or right side of your scale each time you've drafted a die. And then you have sort of like a mini uh, accountability phase where you may do some scoring, but you're always going to be trying to create a little bit of a balance between the pip values of those dice. And you're, you're either weighing towards uh, the... I, I can't remember the terminology, but it's like the good dice versus the bad dice is kind of the way that you think of it. It's light versus dark. And if you create a perfect balance between the values on that scale, then that's a good thing because the players who have the greatest balance have the, the most likelihood of being able to go first, you know, have mm -hmm. take that first player uh, slot. And if you have an imbalance, you could potentially lose victory points if you have a significant imbalance to the negative, the dark side, um, but it also makes it more difficult for you to, to work your way up in the in the turn order. So you're less likely to you're more likely to go last, in other words, than you are to, to win the first player spot. So, gosh, each one of the actions is 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 crazy. I mean, I don't know that we need to get into the details of that, but I think that's that's a, maybe a good feel. Hopefully it paints a little bit of a picture for people, because I think the drafting mechanism is unique as you. As you take turns drafting uh, four dice, then that obelisk, actually, I think it's two dice, then that obelisk will rotate and um, and different things will happen as it rotates. Dice will move into different positions. Um, so, you know, dice that were forbidden before will become available. Uh, dice that were previously in the light area will go into the darker area. So it changes actions that you might want to take or be able to take based on trying to balance things out on your on your map, mm -hmm. on your player board. Um, and, and so the drafting aspect is really unique, but then I think the balancing is really unique too, because you don't always want sixes, nor do you always want ones, you know, that's going to change depending on the, the color of the die, depending on where you're, you're taking it from, um, and, you know, and where you're going to end up placing it on your player board and, and how you want to create that balance or how you want to deal with that aspect of, of the drafting. Hmm. Yeah, it, it definitely has a lot of of things going on that are very uh, typical or, or normal for, for a Euro game, right? You have a player board where you're removing pieces and placing them onto the board, which then grants you victory points or some kind of special bonus or something. You know, there's, there's tracks that you're moving up. There's uh, cards that you're acquiring that grant you, you know, either overtime bonuses or immediate bonuses or, or end game you know, scoring, 
capabilities. Um, and then there's there's also this this uh, kind of unique little grid area that that you can build these cool like pillar wooden pillar pieces columns marble yeah, columns yeah and it's cool like they're actual wooden columns that you you place on the board and um, so there's there's some some things that you're very familiar with and then it kind of takes uh, an interesting spin on certain other aspects so so you were saying you really liked the balancing the balancing act or you thought that that was at least interesting yeah it was captivating um it was a it was an interesting way to come at the the player order Hmm. um i think we all kind of agreed right at the beginning of the game there was a really interesting way for determining who the first player was going to be and so basically you randomly choose a pseudo first player yeah and then there's a there's a mini drafting uh action that takes place and that actually takes place multiple times over the game at certain uh, intervals. Um, there are four cards, and we played a four-player game. So basically, I think you're going to have one card for each player in the player count, regardless of your player count. And whoever is the first player um, gets to choose a card. Um, actually, I'm kind of skipping ahead because there was a there was a uh, similar to Zulkin or uh, or Teo. There's a mechanism by where you choose two different cards that determine your starting resources, but then those cards had a numeric value on them and you sum those values together. So basically your starting resources were going to determine um, how, you know, where you landed in the player order, basically how well, well to do you are, how well off you are. Uh, by the cards that you drafted. So you could choose cards that had resources or that had, uh, you know, sort of like a certain strategy that you were starting to be benefited by already. Or you could choose cards based on trying to have higher numeric values on the cards. And maybe they're giving you lesser benefits to start the game off, but that's giving you the ability to start higher in the turn order, uh, which was which was really kind of an interesting way to, to determine that. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was interesting too, as we finished you know, just our first game, we realized that there's kind of a, or at least it felt like there was kind of a, like a snowball effect uh, with the first player. Uh, Those that had the first player in the previous round uh, seemed to be in a better position to get first player the next round if they, if they wanted to. And so that very first initial uh, decision space of do I want more resources or a better starting position in terms of, of my resources or my abilities, or do I want to be first player? And so that, that initial decision was awesome right off the bat. I love when games give you a a meaningful or tough decision, like before you even technically start playing the game. I I know that I'm going to be in for a treat if that's the case. And I think that it became very apparent that this is the type of game that, that, the player order matters. The turn mm. order matters a lot. And so it was it was refreshing to have the design be that thoughtful in determining the turn order right from the very beginning. I don't fault any game that says take the player pieces and shake them in your hand and drop one. You know, I don't I don't fault that at all. I think yeah. that's that's perfectly fine. Using Schwazi or or being <laughs> truly random is is great. But I I think any time, I mean, why are we in the hobby? Why do we enjoy strategy games so much, right? It yeah. is because it gives you that that decision space. Yeah. It's not roll and move. And this is just another like notch, another rung up on the ladder 
that kind of levels you up towards having that that additional decision space right from like you said right from the gate. Yes, uh, one of the one of the reasons that I play games is the the competitive nature of it. I just enjoy you know trying to to battle you know wits with other people, uh, match wits with other people. I I enjoy that. Uh, and so I appreciate when designers try to make the game as fair as they possibly can across the board, where everybody has equal opportunity. Uh, you might get your teeth kicked in because of decisions that you made, but it's a bummer when, in a sense, the game is like already pitched against you simply because first player was chosen randomly you know, so I really appreciate when, like you said, when the designers put in the time to fit. And that was such a creative way to do it. I don't know if I've ever seen it quite done to that extent. We've seen games where, uh, you know, the the first, uh, you know, either the first player marker initially or even your starting resources are like bid for or there's an auction for that or, or whatever. But just the way that they did it was very creative. It was fun. You know, it was a tough decision. It, so I enjoyed it. I thought that was cool too. And I started to mention this when I was explaining the very beginning of the game, deciding the turn order. Um, you know, so so then you take the two cards, that determines your starting resources and it determines the turn order. But then I, I started to mention this before that there's another drafting that takes place. And and that's the one that happens on, on a regular basis throughout the game, mm-hmm. that there's another set of cards based on the player count and you're drafting from those. And those also have a resource and a numeral on them. And that is the tiebreaker for determining, that numeral is the tiebreaker for determining the turn order. Mm-hmm. So if several players balance their scale to the same degree, that that numeral on that card that you drafted in the most recent you know, group of turns uh, is what's going to determine that tiebreaker. So again, throughout the game, you have that same decision space on a recurring basis do I take the slightly better resource or do I take the slightly larger number that's going to give me the, you know, the, the tiebreaker if I'm tied and, and maybe going to push me into second or first place in the turn order? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. There was like almost like a, a, a double layer of, of uh, deciding the, the first player. So yeah, that was cool. Was there anything that you uh, didn't quite like or or anything that maybe you would have changed or, or maybe you wish would have been a little bit different or um I, i'd have to play the game a little more maybe to to have anything that jumps out at me as a giant red flag in terms of the design itself um aesthetically i i it was difficult to take in the the visual mm. design of the game because everything was beige yeah. I think, you know, um, so it's kind of funny and this maybe isn't clear to anyone that hasn't seen photos of the game or hasn't seen the game before because we're describing the obelisk casts a shadow and on this wheel. So you have lighter spaces, shaded spaces and darker spaces. But then within each of those spaces, you have a darker space, a medium space and a lighter space and all of those shades and 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 you know brightnesses i'm describing are all different hues of beige yep (laughs) and then you have dice that are black gray yellow and white so they're basically you know they're effectively monotone you know yellow beige white uh so that that was the only thing is that it, it lacked a little bit of vibrance that way but it is it is a 
you know, uh, an Aztec or, um, you know, an ancient kind of a theme. So it's, I, I, I get the aesthetic that they were going for in that regard. Um, I don't know if it's actually Aztec or Mayan or, um, I think it was actually Egyptian. Egyptian. I was going to say Egyptian. And then I thought, I don't want to sound like an idiot. It's not, it's clearly not Egyptian. (laughs) I'm probably totally wrong, but I'm willing to put myself out there as the idiot. Perfect. Oh, there we go. Uh, but yeah, I, I, that was, that was one thing that would have been a little bit nicer. Um, I think it could have helped and I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a designer and a creative by trade. So those are things that I think about, um, how those decisions and choices might actually help the communication or help the the player understand. Um, but, but I thought the board was laid out nicely, um, at no shortage whatsoever of compelling decisions to make. And as far as balance goes, I mean, one play, I can't really say anything, you know, but um, maybe the one thing that I, I think we might've discussed this after our game was that it felt to me that in certain cases, the, the decision as to whether or not I wanted to take certain dice for really powerful actions or other dice that would better balance my scale on my Mm. player board to try to keep up and, and keep my scale balanced so that I could fight for that turn order. I think sometimes that decision wasn't really there for me in that one play. Hmm. I felt like, again, it could have just been the roll of the dice and the dice that were chosen to come out of the bag and the actions that I wanted to take at that given moment. But as I, as I surveyed the board, I never really felt that there was a huge choice to make. I always felt like there was an option that let me do what I wanted to do. And that's not necessarily a knock. It's just, I I never felt that there was really a big challenge to, uh, you know, to make a sacrifice for turn order in order to do the thing that I wanted to do. I always felt like it was fairly easy to do those two things. Now, could I do everything that I wanted to do? Absolutely not. The game definitely gave you a plethora of choices and let you really dive in wherever you wanted to dive in. Hmm. Yeah, the uh, the the scale concept in the game was really interesting to me as well, and and we we did talk about this a little bit. Um, just that that balancing act is is very in- interesting in in theory, uh, but one it, it really wasn't ever very difficult. And I mean, for myself, I did it the the most poorly out of all of us. And I still never went very far from the middle, right? From from being balanced, and so so for it not being uh, that difficult to do, and then it just for me personally, I wish there would have been more tied into it. I wish that it would have mattered more, uh, just even on a larger scale. You know, I wish there maybe would have been some other benefit or, or some other reason to really worry about that balance or, or maybe even uh, some incentive to, to intentionally go ex- off balance. Exactly. Yeah. For there to be an imbalance. Um, you know, maybe if you went to the, was it, I feel like the light side was, was pure. Yes. But, but I don't pure know. and tainted. I tainted. Yeah, yeah. That's what it was. It was. Yeah. It was. Yeah. <laughs> tainted is just kind of a funny word so yeah. you can imagine uh, yeah so the three the, the jokes the three uh tiers of each pie wedge um were pure 
tainted and forbidden. And the forbidden were basically locked dice. And then you had the pure and the tainted, which went on the, the lighter or the darker side of your scale, according. Yes. So it, it could have been cool, you know, if there were some there was some incentive for you to go way far on the tainted side, which there definitely wasn't because on the tainted side, you actually received or you lost victory points. There were negative victory points given to you. But then on the pure side, like you could go all the way to the end of the track and it didn't matter. There, yeah, you I could mean, be the most pure person in the world and you're not earning victory points for that. Yeah. You're just not going first in the turn order. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yep. So I wish that there would have been more tied into it because it was such an interesting way to do the the dice drafting mechanism. It was something to consider, but at least this implementation of it didn't really feel like it was that substantial. And I think, again, one play is the big disclaimer. Sure. You know, yep. I, we could play it again and realize that, well, if I take all the pure dice and I imbalance myself all the way to the top of the scale, then someone else is going to be end, is going to end up with a lot more tainted dice, and maybe that drives them down to the to the negative side, and they lose points. I mean, I'm sure, like, there's a yeah. lot of potential strategy that we haven't even begun to to scratch the surface of, and that's the disclaimer, of course. So, just kind of our reaction to that first play, but I would definitely tend to agree with that. Yep. Yeah, that's a good that's a good observation. They're probably especially knowing the track record of the designers and, you know, playing many of their other games, uh, you would guess that it's probably deeper than what we were able to to dive into with the one play. I also really, I liked the, uh, so there was a track called, uh, well, it was the, the population track, but there were two markers on it, one representing your population and then one representing the happiness of your population. And the happiness marker could never go past where the population marker was. Uh, and, and why this primarily mattered was it gave you access to a greater pool of cards. Cards that we mentioned earlier that would grant you various effects, victory points, different abilities. And so what was a bummer was that we actually played the rule wrong in this play and so we were just like, everybody had access to like all the cards all the time. But the the actual rule of the game is that depending on where your happiness marker is, which is also dictated by where your population marker is, determines which sets of cards you have access to. And so at first I was like, this card pool is like way too swingy, you know, if, if, if we have access to all these cards, somebody could just buy one way at the end and then one really good one could come out right after that, which actually did happen to Joel. And he was kind of bummed about that. Uh, but then after thinking about the the official rule, um, I don't think it's as swingy as I thought. And I think that you really, because two of us actually focused on the track and we still didn't get like all the way to the end. You know, we only got our happiness uh, marker like maybe a little over half or, or between half and three quarters uh, and so I think really to take advantage of those cards you you have to focus on it and focus on the cards and that kind of has to be your focus um, and it was really interesting too because the 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 track of cards or the sections of cards that you would gain access to as you increased your happiness 
were defined on the board by certain types of cards. So mm. at the lowest tier, there was one type of card. So if, if you know one or two or three of those cards were taken, you'd refill them from the same deck and they were the same type of card that you would be able to draft. And then and you moved up into the next tier and it introduced you know a grouping of four cards, but then it introduced also another deck. And so one of those four cards would be from this other deck, which now gives you not just one time on your turn abilities, but ongoing abilities. Mm-hmm. And then as you move down that track, the cards that would get replenished into those, into those groupings that you would gain access to became more and more powerful decks of cards. So then by the time you got to the end of that track, you could draft from one or potentially two uh, game end bonus scoring rules that you could then qualify for and and take from. So that was really interesting too. It wasn't just, oh, I have access to more of the cards, but they're all the same and they could still kind of come out randomly. If you didn't advance down that happiness track, you never got the opportunity to get more of those game end scoring cards or even potentially, like in my case, I had had terribly unhappy people. (laughs) I think I was on like one or two on the track and it goes up to like 30 maybe, I don't know. Um, You know, the, the very lowest tier of cards that you have access to is just cards that you can play once on your turn. You, I don't even think you could draft cards that gave you ongoing abilities in that lowest tier. So that was a neat system too. It was. It was probably for systems where you are randomly like top decking cards to place into a pool. It was probably one of the most thoughtful ways of implementing that kind of system that I've probably ever seen. Generally, it's like, here's a pool of five cards that are available to you. And when you, when one is purchased, you slide the rest down and then one is randomly drawn out. And maybe the ones towards the, you know, the, the far end of of the pool are less expensive or something, but, but it's still like, it's just, it feels very random, feels very lucky, you know, swingy. This system was very thoughtful. Uh, I think they they did a really good job. And it was actually like not playing it the way that we played it, but playing playing it the way that it should be played. I can foresee it being uh, an enjoyable way for me to 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 interact with that kind of system. Generally, I don't I don't enjoy just random cards getting drawn out. I just don't prefer that. But so I loved that. Um, there were a couple aha moments for me, uh, which is always good. If I if I don't ever have one of those moments in a game, usually it's a disappointment. I like that exploration of a design and then discovering something and having that revelation. Uh, to me, that, that says that the game has some depth. Uh, and so it, it became obvious to me, and I think you actually might disagree with this, but uh, it seemed obvious to me that there was a part of the game that seem it seemed like the designers wanted you to focus on that area or they 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 wanted you to to give your attention to it uh, for it to be an area of contention and then what I would call like the the perimeter mechanisms or the the perimeter systems were just uh, ways for you to supplement points you know uh, you, you might not win the game in this one area, this one system, but you're going to get, I mean, that's where the, the battle is, is fought. Um, and I, I've seen that too. I mean, we talked about this a little in Teo, that, that Path of the Dead track, 
the first time you play the game, you're just kind of exploring around. And then the one player chooses to like focus on that and they just, you know, destroy you. And you're like, oh, I think we need to, to focus on this. And then the next time you play the game, you're all kind of contesting for that. And you have to kind of find these little areas to, to supplement points. And so I felt like uh, Tekenu had an area like that. But like you said, it was our first play. Uh, games like this can be deceiving. Once you get in and get a few plays in, uh, it reveals itself a little bit more. Um, really, there wasn't there wasn't much that I had to complain about other than, you know, I wish maybe the the balance system could have been maybe a little more elaborate or, or meaningful. Um, other than that, like they they handled the the randomness in the game really well. I thought, um, you know, it, like you said, there were a lot of meaningful decisions to be made. It was it was one of the you know few games that they've done that doesn't force you to feed your people specifically. Sure, and yep. so that was kind of refreshing because I know a lot of gamers really dislike that in a game, and and there was a there was a system by which if you built certain buildings, you did have to pay a, a resource, but um, it didn't feel like a feed your people in the traditional sense. Mm. Um, so that was that was interesting. Yeah. So good stuff. I enjoyed it. I'm excited to play it again. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that was our game night. It was a good time. Uh, let's get into our topic for tonight, which is theme in games. On the previous episode, uh, I, I shared a little bit about mechanisms and, and my thoughts on mechanisms. And so it's it's fitting tonight that we move on to theme and so there's a few questions which I would like to discuss, and they are, what is theme's purpose and potential in games? How should we handle controversial themes? And what are some themes that turn us off personally uh, and some themes that we really enjoy? So before we get into those, however, I just wanted to make sure that everyone knew what we meant when we used the word theme uh, in regards to, to board games. So without being too overly pedantic here, which I, I don't think is necessary for this conversation specifically, uh, the theme is just what you are doing in the game. Uh, and I don't mean like I am drafting this die or I am collecting these resources, uh, but I mean, uh, you know, I am a fisherman in the 1800s. Or I am a doctor who is trying to treat as many patients as possible in this certain amount of time because they're all dying and I need to prevent that. So it's, it's very literally the role-playing aspect of the game. Who you are and what you are doing in the story of the game. Do you feel like that's an adequate yeah, definition yeah. of theme? I would agree with that for sure. And I like your use of the word story because um, I, I, that's how I probably relate the most to the idea of theme in a game. When I'm thinking about what I like or what I dislike about the experience, it usually come ba comes back to this idea of what kind of a story does it make you feel like you're experiencing or telling. Mm. And in a very loose sense, not like, you know, 
um, you're actually feeling like you're role playing something. I think most of the time in board games, you don't feel that way, but it's just the idea of how, how that story creates or crafts an experience for everybody at the table. Yes, totally agree. So uh, let's start off by discussing what the purpose and potential of theme is in games. So Joe, do you, do you have any thoughts on the purpose of theme or the potential or both? Well, like I said, for me, it's, it's this idea of story and, and how it might affect the experience that people have. So, you know, if, if there's a, um, a little bit of artwork and an idea that is portrayed by the game that is inviting to people or appealing to people, then it's going to make it that much easier for them to want to sit down at the table and play, mm-hmm. whether they're a seasoned gamer or whether they're, you know, new to the hobby and, and don't, you know, a, a seasoned gamer is inviting them to play and, and trying to get them interested in a game. Um, you hear the term table presence. And a lot of times that term is thrown around when you're talking about component quality or artwork. Mm-hmm. But I think that though, you know, if you, if you go to an even higher level than that, it's the, this idea of theme, because I think that those things um, kind of emanate from the theme and they contribute to the theme. And really more importantly, in my mind, they contribute to that overall experience that the players have when they play the game. Mm-hmm. And so for me, when I, when I think about theme or when I talk about it on the podcast tonight, it's the idea that um, it's really the, the experience that's being created by the game for the players. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's what it would come down to is that little bit of storytelling um, or that, that experience that, that you know, adds to, hopefully, and contributes to the fun that you're going to have, um, it, you know, that, that makes connections between different actions that you're taking and activities that you're taking so that you can kind of tie that together into that experience. And if it, if it adds to the excitement, if it adds to the drama, um, assuming that you're, you're playing a game that's exciting or dramatic, and hopefully those are qualities of the game, because I think that they make the game more fun then Mm. you know, then that's, uh, that's, that's a positive of, of theme. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I, uh, wanted to mention was this idea of immersion and I think that that's, uh, I mean, really what you're, you're hitting on is this, uh, this feeling of really being a part of the game, right? Like you are, you're not role-playing, like you said. Uh, that's why I said a literal, because I mean, it, it is the role that you are playing in the game. And you, you, that may not affect you at all, but for some players, you know, they, they like to in a sense, role play. You know, if, if you're if you're playing on Mars, you know, you might it might be more enjoyable for you to even just in a moment kind of immerse yourself in that theme and and say, oh, I, we're losing oxygen or you know, like whatever. I don't even know. We're gonna lose. I'm gonna learn on Mars tonight after we record this. Uh, so I don't even know how it works right now, but you know, whatever the thing is, you might, you might immerse yourself in the theme of the game. Uh, and for you, that might be, uh, one way that you enjoy the game is through the theme. Um, I think it would be worth noting that, uh, theme is valuable when learning the rules to a game. 
Um, if you can connect the theme and the mechanisms, uh, I think you'll be able to learn the game much quicker and remember all of the varied actions and their consequences uh, much easier. Um, if if the the mechanisms are are more obscure uh, as to why you're doing them or how they connect with the theme, I think many people have a hard time uh, learning a game and, and retaining that information. Uh, so I think theme is valuable just in, in terms of, of learning the game and being able to play the game without constantly having to, to reference a rule book for all of these little obscure rules. Yeah, Z Garcia with the Dice Tower, is a he's a reviewer and I really like his reviews. He does a really good job of systematically going through the same things with every game that he talks about. Um, the same topics and talking about how they apply to that particular game. And two of the things he talks about are theme. And when he talks about theme, he talks about um, sometimes how it does tie into the teachability of the game. Does the theme make it easier to teach this game or is it completely irrelevant or is there no theme? So that's one thing he looks at. Um, and then the other thing that I think sort of ties into to theme in some ways is also the game arc. And mm. that comes back to that immersion or that experience that we were just talking about a minute ago because I think the theme can impact that game arc and that, that idea of, it's almost like a movie, right? When you, mm. when you watch a good film, you're immersed in it. You know, you feel like you're part of that dystopian world or you feel like you're, you know, you're, you're dealing with the same, you know, issues that have to be dealt with by the, the characters that are in the film. And so you feel that same stress or that, that love story or whatever the case might be. And I think that if a game does a really good job of being immersive, then it has the potential to affect that arc, you know, mm -hmm. um, those moments that you feel the most tension potentially um, and things like that. So I, I think that if you compare it to the plot arc in a, in a film, it could, it could have some correlation potentially. Mm. And that's not to say that I think every game has to have theme or that games are better if they have theme than, if, than the ones that don't have any. But I think that it, it has that potential and, and games that are very thematic. I think that is the role that that theme can play in those games. Yes. And I think it's interesting, too, that you, you uh, mentioned specifically games that have no theme, uh, which is for many, that might be an odd concept or an odd idea. Um, but I mean, if you think of, of something even like, I mean, I think checkers is a, a great example of this because even chess there's a there's a a little bit of theme, a dash, a little yeah, a little little bit. Yeah. But but with checkers, uh, there's not really right. Or even a lot of card games like sure. hearts or euchre. Yep. Um, it's just numbers on cards and a little symbol. And I think the more complex you get, uh, the harder it is to make sense of a game without a theme. That's why many people uh, stay away from uh, deep or complex abstract games because one, it, it may just, it's just not appealing to them. Uh, aesthetically, generally abstract games are, are really clean and simple and geometric and it's, they're not usually much to look at. Uh, but additionally, they, they just, it, it seems to abstract to to certain players like why are we like why are we doing this what is happening like I, so we're just moving these p like it doesn't connect for them 
Um, so I, yeah, I think it, it ties into too just uh, how people's brains are wired and, and how people view the world in general and, and uh, you know, how they connect to a game obviously is going to be varied from player to player. It's going to vary a lot. Some people love abstract games and their brain just works in that kind of mechanical way. Uh, and some, some people, their brains don't work that way. And they prefer to have a, a theme that, that uh, they can connect with and that helps them learn the game and relate to the game. For me personally, uh, theme is usually just more of a, a cohesive element to the game. It, it just kind of ties the whole package together. Uh, I, I actually, there's a lot of abstract games that I, I really enjoy and I, I can deal with that. And so I don't, I don't need a theme. You know, for me, that that tie, that that cohesive element can be pretty loose, you know, as long as the mechanisms are interesting. I'm less concerned with a game being true to its theme mechanically uh, than I am with a game being so true to its theme that it implements mechanisms that detract from the fun of the game, right? Like, you, you play a game and there's this one mechanism that's really thematic and really lame. <laughs> and you're like, I, I know that this makes sense thematically, but I just wish it wasn't in here. So I'm more concerned with like, just make the game fun. If it doesn't, and obviously I'm speaking in like relative terms. When I say fun, that's a relative thing, right? Fun for me is going to be different uh, for somebody else. But just just make the game fun. It doesn't have to always make sense thematically. Like, I'm okay with you being like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like, well, you're a pirate. Why are you, you know, doing Excel spreadsheets? Like, <laughs> like I don't know why that's there. But if, if the mechanism's fun, I, like, that's fine. So that's that's my my take on it. I don't know. I mean, you, you kind of explained your... Yeah, I... I why I, theme's important to you. I, I largely agree with that. Um... I don't feel the need for theme in games and there are specifically, and there are games that I really enjoy that I would classify as abstract or as mostly abstract that are really up high on the list of games that I would rate or play or, um, you know, that my family loves. But I, I do also agree with the fact that the heavier, the more complex, the more intricate a game becomes the more important the theme becomes in making that system or that that group of systems approachable for the player, to, even just the memory aspect, hmm. uh, you know, to be able to remember how all the rules work and how they work with one another in a really heavy, really complex game. I think the way that the human mind relates to the real world is through our experiences, our everyday life. And so by taking a, a system of rules in a game and marrying that to some kind of theme and doing it in a pretty good way, yep. trying to make sure that the, that the mechanisms, like you said, relate fairly well to that theme, just makes a, a, a system for the players to be able to remember it, to, to be able to process it and, and have it make sense. And then again, I think going back to what we said originally, it also kind of feeds that game arc and it feeds that experience and that enjoyment that the players are really immersing themselves in. Good stuff. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, controversial themes. 
how do we how do we deal with them? Um, how how do you respond to them personally? Uh, and and should there be should there be themes that are generally off limits that that designers shouldn't even touch at all? Um, what are, what are what are some of your thoughts? How do you deal with controversial themes? Um, and you know you, you can name some if you want. Or I mean, obviously, right now um, with uh, everything that's happening with um, the the tension uh, around race and equality, um, there are many games that, uh, especially maybe some of the the more classic games uh, that have dealt with um, colonialism and colonization and the, you know, European exploration. And, you know, a lot of these game themes deal with controversial realities. And so kind of what's, what's your take on themes that are controversial and how do you deal with them? Well, for me, I think I make a distinction between a a piece of art, a game or a film or a book or anything of that nature that tells a story that glorifies something that's controversial or evil or wrong versus um, incorporates that into the story in a way that, you know, is profitable for the story or the the reader or the viewer or the player um, is constructive. It's used constructively, but doesn't glorify that. Mm. Um, So I'm not saying that there's specific games that I think have done this really well, um, or that there are specific games that have glorified something that's terrible because I don't think I, I can't think of any example of a game that glorifies (laughs) some evil. Mm. It's probably something out there. Um, and, and there, there are games that do that tongue in cheek, um, hail Hydra, you know, it's a fictional universe, mm. you know, and, and you can, you can take on that role. You can play cops and robbers in different games, you know, um, and you can be in bang, you can be the, the bandit or whatever, instead of the mm. sheriff. I mean, so, but, but I, I guess what I look at is, is the game actively trying to glorify some kind of really wrong, evil, um, subject matter Mm. is it glorifying slavery you know is it glorifying um you know something of that nature or is that historical element and uh, you know is it is the game going to cause me to change my viewpoint or my perspective um or does it open up an opportunity to have a conversation about that subject matter which could actually be a positive um I, i do think that it's you know, I, I think that it's it's positive that publishers are looking at some of these topics and, you know, making changes to, to games hmm. um, and trying to remove elements that are controversial um, from from games as a way of, you know, a- acknowledging the fact that that that's not something that uh, is positive. Hmm. Um but I don't personally relate to those aspects of games as something that's going to directly affect me mm. based on it. You know, like I said, it's it, it not glorifying something. Yeah, I think, it, man, this it, it's a it's a tough 
it's a tough thing to uh, wrestle with and and even come to conclusions on uh, because the conclusions that we come to are probably only going to be conclusions for us, not for anyone else. Um, but I think that this this topic and this question gets to the heart of what is the essence or nature or purpose of games? Is it celebratory? Is it introspective? Is it, you know, what what is the... What is the essence of the experience that you're supposed to have when playing a game? Um, and I, I don't, I don't think that there is one blanket answer to that. That you know, all games are meant to be celebratory. They're all meant to be. I would even say they're all meant to be fun. Um, now that's tough because a few I, come to mind. <laughs> well, I mean, I have fun just learning. Some people don't have fun learning. Learning is a chore, uh, or at least in a more uh, traditional academic sense of, of learning. You know, I like to just read books because I like to take in information and, and, and uh, you know, just figure out how I can apply that to my life. Um, so that's fun for me. So in a board game, it may actually be fun for me to play a game that deals with difficult topics, though it may not be celebratory, right? So it, it, it gets it gets tough, I think. Um, I think that board games have the ability to be these unique, interactive works of art, kind of like, you know, you, you called them works of art earlier, um, where the, the players direct the development of, of the expression in that in that work and they determine its end result. For me though, I don't often relate to games in that way in a practical level. For me, my take on games is generally just this is a horizontally interactive puzzle that I'm trying to solve. The the themes the, the theme in games doesn't generally hit me in that way. But but therefore, for me, uh, controversial themes have a place in board games, um, but I don't think they're to be taken lightly. I, I think the more you abstract a certain theme or topic, the less offensive it becomes, right? The, the farther out you go, the, the less offensive it is because the rules and the, the peoples and whatever, it's all, it's all more abstracted. Uh, but arguably, I think the more you abstract a theme, the less effective it is. When I say that, uh, I am implying that board games can have messages to get across or that they have uh, arguments to make. And, and I believe that, that some do and that the medium of board gaming definitely has the potential for that. I would, I mean, I would say that unless you are going to take the responsibility to do a weightier theme justice, like it's probably just a better idea not to, to deal with the theme at all. If you're not going to like take the time to consider what somebody who is not like you might think of that theme or, or how they might respond to that theme, like why not just not do that theme? Like 
you can literally make a game about anything. Why take something that could be very meaningful to somebody else and try to whitewash it or try to like, you know, just, and maybe that's, maybe that's like a, it's not, I was going to say maybe it's like a cowardly way to do it, but I don't think so. I think it's respectable for you to say, I don't know if I'm going to do this theme justice, so I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to do something else that I, I feel like I can handle more appropriately. And so the question that will come up is what about historical games? What about games that are trying to be historically accurate? Which I've, I've wrestled with. For many, the way in which they enjoy games and connect with games prevents them from playing games wherein they do things that bear too heavily on their conscience. Even if it's historical. Even if it is true that this people group owned slaves and in the game, that's how you get work done. That's historically accurate, but it could be hard for, you know, anybody to play a role in which the main way in which they get their work done is through slaves. Even if that is a little bit abstracted, right? I mean, so Puerto Rico comes to mind. Mm -hmm. That it's a classic example. They've they've worked to deal with that issue, but it stands. I mean that that theme and that time period that the game takes place in, you you can't really get get around that reality. And I think they're trying to get around it in their new edition. Yeah, which is really interesting because you no longer bring colonists over on ships; you hire them in a tavern. Yes, and so that I think that gets to what you're saying it's like how do you do you lie (laughs) you know in the game and pretend that it didn't exist yeah you know but at the same time it's you can't you 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 have to you cannot glorify that and you shouldn't glorify that um so it, it yeah it becomes a very difficult thing to handle yes uh puerto rico actually which is weird i didn't i didn't think that it would i had read things about it before we we played it and I, when we played it, I actually felt a little uncomfortable. Like I, I felt a little bit like just out of place. I felt, it felt like kind of wrong. Um, but, but in a sense, I kind of welcome that, that uncomfortable feeling because it, it like challenges me to wrestle with how I look at the world and, and how I view things and, what I, uh, you know, approve of and what I disapprove of. And so I really do think that games can deal with uh, offensive or controversial topics in a way that is true to that theme or that topic without, like you said, uh, approving of it or or glorifying it, or, uh, you know, making it seem fun, in a sense, to oppress people or to, you know, whatever. A game comes to mind, and hopefully you know the game I'm talking about uh, by, by me just describing it, but it is, it takes place 
uh, around the time of Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. And there's a big twist in the game that a lot of times players don't see coming. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you familiar with that? So the the listeners that aren't, I don't want to say the name of the game. I don't want to like spoil, spoil it. But, um, you know, that game comes to mind if you are familiar with what I'm talking about, because it puts you in a really uncomfortable position very intentionally as a way of, of challenging your, your beliefs, your memory of history and those types of things. And I think in that sense, you, it goes back to your comment about fun. Like, is that game trying to make you have fun or is it trying to provoke you in a way that's healthy, Mm. you know, in a way that, um, you know, they're trying to, and again, um, am I in a, am I in a, a category of, of players or of people that would be more sensitive mm-hmm. to that topic? Um, I'm certainly not in the most, in the category of people that would be most sensitive to that. Um, but maybe that would affect other people differently. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the intent was to, was to create something that was, was provocative in a, um, the intent again in a, in a, in a healthy way, in a tasteful way, you know, in a way that was shocking intentionally, um, but not for its own sake, you know, not, not just for the sake of shock and awe and, you know, and making a big splash. Um, and I know another game and I, I haven't played that game and I haven't played this one either. The, the, um, the life of Billy, what, what's it called? Mm. The, Thought, I can't, yeah, yeah, yeah. The full title's escaping me, but it's the something life of Billy yeah, Kerr or I someone. Either, yeah. <laughs> um, I know that game is maybe described as melancholy sure. by people, you know, but it's again, it's another game that takes interesting um, theme or interesting topics and it puts them in front of you in a way that's meant to make the experience non-traditional. Mm. Um, it's meant to be thought-provoking. And potentially and hopefully conversation provoking. And if that's, if that's done well, um, and if the conversation that results is, you know, edifying (laughs) and beneficial to the people involved in it, then great. You know, Mm -hmm. you know, hopefully it, it, it becomes a positive experience. Tough to do. Yeah. And I think what makes, what makes, uh, controversial themes in board games difficult is the interactivity of board games, right? You can, you can watch a documentary or a a film about some horrendous event in history and feel, I mean, you you may feel a level of uncomfortableness, you know, like you, you, but there's something unique about board games in which you actually have to pick a side and try to move that side towards success, right? So if that side that you're picking is the bad guys, that's, I mean, that, that's like a whole different experience. That's a whole different way of, of learning about something. Um, but I, I do think that it, it is a valuable means of, uh, learning. Um, I I think that it has the potential to open your mind to how certain 
ideologies and practices could have come to be uh, and how they survived or why they failed and to just further like reinforce your perspective on a topic or to uh, potentially persuade you otherwise. So like I said, I I think it's possible um, to portray darker historical realities accurately without celebrating the injustices and atrocities. But does every publisher or designer take the care to do that? I mean, no, certainly not. Um, And definitely not every time. But I think it's possible. And I think that there's a lot of space even that hasn't been explored yet to, to kind of deal with certain issues. Now, obviously, that's I mean, you're you're polarizing. It's polarizing a little bit to create a game like that because there's going to be many people that don't want to to have that kind of experience. They don't want to learn in that way. Um, and and regardless of the arguments for it, um, they may see that game as glorifying that or as trying to make that thing fun, even if that's not the designer's intent or the publisher's intent. Um, I think that's just inevitable. So if you decide to design a game that deals with a known topic that is offensive or controversial, um, you just have to know and I think take responsibility for the reality that some people are are not going to like that and some people are going to be upset. Um, But with all other forms of art, I think that board games do have uh, the potential and and the, the right to deal with some of these weightier concepts. Um, I actually don't think I've honestly played that many of them. And I, I don't even, I don't think that many of them exist. I honestly, I think the war game genre probably has a lot more controversial themes than, or at least controversial in a sense that, like I said, you're having to take a side where one side is, is seen more as the bad guys. Um, Though there are, I mean, with with you know the the colonist role is done a lot. Um, I would say it's probably done less now than it was, you know, ten years ago. But there are definitely a, a lot of games that Euro games, especially that um, deal with that that uh, that topic. And I don't know, is it is it better to not do the theme to to do the theme but exclude historical realities uh or try to do the theme justice and and really put an emphasis on the learning aspect you know i th- i think those are your three options and i i don't necessarily know which one's best i i think as a designer myself I lean towards the far former in that I can make a game about anything. So why don't I just make something that is going to be edifying completely? Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, even think about you have, you have two different ends of the spectrum where you have games that feature colonists or games like five tribes had slaves and they were removed, things like that. Um, oh yeah, that but, I felt uncomfortable a yeah. little bit when I because I, I I played the 
the, the first, original version. Yeah. And then you're using the word slaves in the game. Yeah. Uh, but then you also crazy. have, I mean, you have games about the Underground Railroad. And so that's taking the opposite and, uh, you know, of the same issue and putting it in a more positive, direct light, you know, yeah. um, let's take on the role of, you know, the people that tried to help those slaves become free and escape yeah. the, you know, the torment and the life that they, you know, were suffering. And, and so I think that those, I, I think that it's definitely possible to take a, a controversial theme by the shoulders and do it justice in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and maybe that is the better approach than to kind of um, dismiss the controversial aspect of a game that doesn't particularly put, you know, put that issue in the limelight or glorify it, but it's still there. Yeah. You know, maybe that's maybe that's the better approach. Um, from from my perspective as a gamer, not being a publisher, not having to make those decisions. Um, the way I look at it is kind of like I said from the beginning, um, you know, is, is there an opportunity to have a conversation that can be positive? Hmm. Um, and, and, and is there a situation that is, you know, causing anybody to be uncomfortable or that is, you know, um, glorifying some evil in a, in a particularly (laughs) despicable way? You know, I would certainly steer clear of that. I agree. Uh, so I, I honestly don't know if that, uh, I don't know if we arrived anywhere with that particular um, point, but I, I think that it's a, a discussion that, as as responsible humans, we we need to have. And uh, so, yeah, hopefully, we all, as a collective, continue to to talk about those things and and be willing to talk with people that disagree with us and be willing to um, listen. And, and hear all sides of, of the arguments and, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll be better for it. So let's, uh, let's briefly talk about um, any themes that are just a turnoff for you straight up. Um, and then any themes that um, you have enjoyed in the past uh, or, or themes maybe that you haven't played a game with that theme and would like to see or, or any variation of that. So turn-offs and turn-ons or things that you would like to see. Yeah, I don't I don't know that I have a lot of specific preferences in that regard because of what we talked about earlier. Hmm. For me, the theme is definitely not in the front. Um I there are, there are plenty of games with common themes that I enjoy one and dislike another, um, you know, and, and there are plenty of games with themes that I would say I would never play that game again, but then another game with the same theme, I would happily try. Um, and I think many people would probably agree with that or identify with that. And many wouldn't, but for me, the theme is, is supplemental and, and much like, um, I guess much like I have a, a certain preference for certain types of films, um, a lot of my preferences for, for games might follow suit a little bit towards um, themes that involve uh, science fiction or um, future or um, I like dystopian films a lot. So games that have those types of elements to them, I, I 
I maybe enjoy, but that's definitely not a blanket sweep statement. Mm. You know, I, I think for me, it comes down to the overall experience, how, how well the game plays and the overall presentation of the game, the aesthetics, the components, those are all things, the art, um, and the gameplay itself being the most important. Those are all the things that collectively I probably care about more than theme. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm honestly, I'm right there with you. Um, I don't even need to talk because you just said what I was <laughs> what I was thinking. Um, yeah, generally a, a theme is not going to put me off. Like uh, the theme is not going to be the thing that deters me uh, from a game. Generally speaking. Um, as I previously said, uh, I generally don't regard the theme at all once the game is underway. I, I just don't, I don't generally think about the theme once we've started playing the game. Um, I do think that sometimes the theme uh, helps me connect some of the mechanisms or the rules. But once we're playing and I've got kind of how the mechanisms work down, I just like the theme just escapes me. It, it's it's like it's removed completely from the game. So I'm primarily concerned with mechanisms, but secondarily, I'm more concerned with, as you said, the aesthetic of the game um, than the theme. I really appreciate uh, bright and colorful art um, and clean, clear graphic design. Um, and not even, I mean, I think components like... Are, are cool and I, I think that they can add a, another dimension to the game but I'm I'm more concerned even with just the art um, and the the graphic design in the game the theme obviously gives direction to the aesthetic and the uh, overall vibe of the game and so you know I do enjoy when a game implements uh, an interesting theme and when I say interesting, I mean a theme that isn't commonly used in board gaming uh, because like colonizing Mars is an interesting theme in and of itself. But in the last five years, it's like every other game that comes out has that theme. So when I say interesting, I just mean like themes that aren't commonly used because, you know, there's there are a handful of themes that seem to just get used a lot. Uh, in in the hobby, uh, smartphone ink, which is a game that that we just played not too long ago, um, I think was hitting on all of the things that I I mentioned that I look for with regards uh, to theme. Right? It was it was an interesting theme. Um, we've we've played a ton of games where you're manufacturing something and selling it, right? But never cell phones. I mean that was that was new, right? And it just that little that little nuance there, like kind of heightened it for me. You know, we weren't just making a a, a normal thing; we were making cell phones. Um, and the aesthetic was great. the 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 art was clean. The graphic design was clear. It was uh, it just it was just hitting on those things that I I look for in in an aesthetic uh, for a game. So the theme doesn't generally turn me off or, or put me off, but it, it definitely can enhance the experience uh, a little bit. But with that being said, I do stay away from a 
theme basically all the time. And that is a, a horror theme. That is almost a, a turnoff for me when I see that it is uh, a, a horror theme. Um, because generally, I don't, I don't like the horror aesthetic. For one, it's dark and creepy and usually implements like excessive, needless gore. And, you know, it's just like this whole vibe of the game, like I just don't care for. Um, I don't care for that vibe in any other type of media as well. So that might be the caveat to this whole thing is, is like horror themes. I just, it's not my thing. It's funny. I completely agree with that. And I didn't even, that didn't even cross my mind because I, I can't think of a horror game that I've played. So it, it didn't even come to, to yeah. mind, you know, thinking about themes. But when you mentioned that, I did think of, um, I think it's Air of Frankenstein is a okay. newer game. It's, it's uh um, it might actually be done by the same group that did Jaws and um, I can't. Oh, yeah, the Prospero. I, Hall. It might be Prospero Hall, but I, I don't hold me to that because okay. it's probably not true. But it's <laughs> it's a it's a Euro game and it's very vividly gory okay. from, from things that I've heard, from descriptions that I've read and, and podcasts that I've listened to and things like that. And I it, that's an immediate turn off for me. I have no desire. It could be a fantastic game mechanically, but. If that's the theme that it's wrapped around, it just does nothing for me. Yeah. I have no desire to be building, to, to, you know, taking tokens that have gory, uh, you know, human body parts on them, <laughs> you know, yeah. severed limbs and things like that. And and like that just, yeah, I, I agree. Games that uh, that play with your, your fear or, you know, horror films in the same sense, like, mm. um, that are that are designed just to shock you and scare you like it does nothing for me i don't i don't want that in a film i wouldn't care for that in a board game yeah either although it's a totally different medium and i don't think you you don't you don't have that same effect in a board game obviously that you would in a horror film but Mm. i completely agree with that yeah and what another one actually just came to my mind and that is like uh like college humor games or or games that implement like just a really like crude humor, uh, which generally means in the art they have uh, all sorts of obscenities and you know like sexualized women and you know there's just like that whole thing. I just I I don't care for. I, there's no there's no appeal at all, and and that is a turnoff for me. And and specifically anything that um, indulges in the over sexualization of our culture, that would be a turnoff for me. I don't honestly know if there's many games that that do that or or that. Thankfully, yeah, and and there may be, but thankfully, I you know I I just haven't gone in that direction. I'm sure you could go on Reddit and find whatever you want. <laughs> you know, I'm sure there's a a niche corner of the board game market that really is into that but um that would be a, a another theme that i would that would turn me off and i wouldn't i wouldn't want to want to play that yeah um other than that give me something that is interesting um and you're already exceeding my expectations with theme but i'm not deterred by trading in the mediterranean yeah you know yeah same i we, i mentioned that earlier we talked about that you know some people won't play X theme, yep. 
ever. Um, and it might be something as common as trading in the Mediterranean or space travel. Um, I mean, I, I can think of several different reviewers who will say those things specifically. I never play space games or I never play trading in the Mediterranean yeah. or I never play fantasy. And I don't particularly love fantasy. I don't particularly love trading in the Mediterranean. I don't particularly love space travel. Yeah. Give me any of them. I'll happily play them if it's a great game. If it's a great experience, a great aesthetic, sign me up. Yep. So do you have anything else you want to add to, to our, our discussion? No. Sums it up nicely. All good thoughts. Mm-hmm. Thank you for uh, for your time and for your contribution to the, the conversation. Glad to be here. So that is a wrap. Uh, thanks again for joining us tonight in our discussion on theme if you, the listener, have anything you'd like to add, we'd love to hear from you via the comments section on the discussion page. Uh, there'll be a, a link in the show notes to that discussion page. On the next episode, we're going to be talking about some of our favorite designers. We're going to dig into what it is about their design style that makes them beloved to us. Uh, Do they have a signature design philosophy um, or are there certain mechanisms that they like to put in a lot of their games that uh, are really appealing to us? So we'll do some exploration there. Uh, Make sure you stay tuned for that. Also, make sure you spread the love on the giveaway. Uh, Get signed up for our newsletter between Monday, September 21st, 2020 at 8 p.m. and Monday, September 28th. 2020 at 8 p.m. to be entered to win a fantastic game by Stefan Phil. Uh, hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And thank you again. You you all rule. Ja rule, that is. Peace.